Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Time. There's nothing more valuable. It's what drives everyone to make the most of every moment. We celebrate living large in the now. In a city where time disappears, we create experiences that electrify the soul and memories that will last forever. We go big, we go all night, and here, everyone is invited. So get loose and get loud. This is Circa. You'll have the time of your life. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Hello and welcome to the Arash Markazi Show presented by the Sporting Tribune on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio in Southern California, 98.5 The Bet in Las Vegas, and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network, 95.1 FM and AM 760 in Hawaii. It's Friday. That can only mean one thing. It's Legends of Sport Friday. It's Andy Bernstein. Andy, how are you? I'm good, Arash. I'm great. It's great seeing you at the games, these three rounds of playoffs, you know. Um, hopefully, we were hoping it would go a little further, but it I didn't. Know. But uh, glad, always glad to be with you on Legends of Sport Friday. You as well. I mean, listen, I, I was just thankful to cover a Western Conference Finals in person again. I, I yeah. Obviously, I wasn't there in Florida in the bubble. Um, so the last one for me was uh, back in 2010. Uh, yeah, listen, that, that that season came out of nowhere for the <laughs> Lakers, so very happy, um, you know, that they got to the point that they did. Yeah, I am always fascinated by the people that you talk to because I learn so much, and, and it's one of those things where, um, listen, we're very familiar with a lot of the players and the coaches that you've covered, uh, but you find a way to also bring in some other um, aspects of the game as well. Talk to us about... Uh, the person that you talked to this week, because it is a doctor who wrote a fascinating book, Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. Tell us about this. Well, I have to say, Arash, that um, you're right. I I fascinate myself <laughs> with the people that I want to, that I want to interview on the podcast. Yeah. I read a review of Dr. Russ Settler's book um, in the LA Times. And immediately uh, uh, called my producer uh, Eugenia. Said we got to get we got to get this author on the podcast because the review was just a taste of what the book was about. And we uh, we contacted the publisher and her agent, and lo and behold, we were able to book her. Um, so, Dr. Rustler is is a scholar. She's a professor of uh, African American studies, um, and she wrote this fascinating book about the NBA in the 70s, right? So I started, my career started basically 1980, 81. Yeah. Um, as we know, the 70s, it, it, there's a lot of sort of misconception and mis, not, I don't want to say misinformation, but there's a lot of kind of backstory of the 70s that I myself, who've been with the NBA now 42 years, really didn't realize. Um, yeah. And the backstory is, is that uh, and she wrote very eloquently in this book and laid it out incredibly well um, how Spencer Haywood and what he fought for um, with uh, being able to get the, um, the, the, the four-year rule overturned by the Supreme Court, um, what Oscar Robertson fought for, um, for players' rights, um, Kareem and, and his social justice 
platform and, and activity that he, you know, participated in with Jim Brown, by the way, who we just lost this week, yeah. um, among others, how he was a pivotal figure in the 70s. You know, we all of us think of the 70s as like this sort of drug ridden, um, you know, gambling infested kind of loser era of the NBA, but it really, I mean, it really wasn't. The NBA was in trouble, for sure. There was the merger that was um, proposed between the ABA and NBA, which Oscar Robertson had and his group had fought against, quite frankly, because he felt that it created a monopoly um, and, and free enterprise and free movement of players was restricted if there was a merger. Um, that I didn't know about. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things I didn't know about. Um, and I, I just love speaking to her. She she's incredibly um, obviously well spoken, well versed, well researched. I mean, the the bibliography in the back of the book is almost as thick as the book itself. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I recommend this book to anybody who's listening who who wants to know more about the history of the NBA. You know, we're all kind of historians of the game if we're in this business. But um, I would strongly recommend it for fans as well because. Um, and for, quite honestly, modern players, players yeah. who are in the game right now, who might not know who set the table for them, right? That is uh, so good. You know, I had Spencer Haywood on the podcast, and he's become a great friend. And and Spencer believes that, like, every guy in the NBA should be sending him a Christmas card, you know, because, <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. of what he was able to pave the way for, you know, yep. not, not him single-handedly, but, you know, he, he really put himself on the line. Um so it was, it was great for me. It's great for me to read the history of people like David Stern, you know, who was, you know, um, a longtime attorney with Proskauer for the NBA, and then, of course, became commissioner, and how he was involved in the inner workings of how things changed. And and uh, anyway, it's great. It was a great conversation. And, uh, you know, I love speaking to legendary players, of course, and coaches and ath- athletes and agents and people around the game but somebody like like Teresa uh, like David Hollander who you and I spoke about a couple yeah. of weeks ago um, who write books about about the business that we're in um, is very fascinating to me I love that and with that said let's get to uh, this week's Legends of Sport Friday guest it is Dr. Teresa Rustedler well I have to tell you Teresa it is really a pleasure to meet you um I don't know how much background you know about me, so let me fill you in a little bit because the the conversation will sort of revolve around my history and your book. Um, I'm now 40-plus years working for the NBA. Um, My first real gig working for the league was the 83 All-Star Game, but I had been working a couple of years before as a freelancer. And you write about that in your book, actually, about that game. I grew up in New York, a Brooklyn kid. Um, the Knicks NBA basketball was not really on my radar. You know, we played a lot of street basketball and, and playground ball, but it was really a hockey as a hockey kid and a, um, a Mets fan, baseball fan. So I wasn't paying attention to what was going on in, you know, growing up in the 70s, late 60s, 70s in, in New York to what was happening in the NBA, quite frankly. So when I read the review about your book in the LA Times, it like, like bells went off in my head because it's a history that I knew nothing about. Right. And the, and of course the review gave me a little taste of that. So I ordered, ordered the book, you know, dove right into it. And, uh, that's why we're here today. <laughs> 
and, great. Yeah, it's really. And I grew up in Canada, so right, right. Hockey was the order of the day, really, until the Raptors came yeah, in. But yeah. of course, I watched the Knicks mm-hmm. before the. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately. <Yeah. laughs> well, we'll get into that in a second because I want to talk about your your history with the Raptors and Canadian basketball, particularly. But um, Teresa. I want to I want to start the interview with a quote which is at the end of your book, right? And that'll lead us into the conversation. So you say, um, "quote If the NBA now has a reputation for being not only the coolest but but most progressive of all the U.S. professional leagues, it's because the players made it so by fighting against the paternalistic and profit-driven practices of the white basketball establishment." Both on and off the court, generations of black players work to make the modern NBA into what fans from across the globe cheer for today, right? Huge, gigantic statement, um, sums up the entire book. <laughs> so, yep. so take us back, Teresa, take us back to the 70s. What was the NBA like and what was basketball like? Because it wasn't just the NBA, of course, it was the NBA and ABA. Right. Well, back in the 1970s, as you mentioned, the ABA and the NBA were pretty minor players in the media landscape. Mm -hmm. And so even if you were a a fan of a major market team, you might have access to their games through local radio, through uh, the sports pages in your newspaper, and the odd telecast on local TV, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't this huge media property with multiple revenue streams. I think uh, the way that I describe it by the time it gets to the late 80s and early 90s is that they're almost following a kind of um, corporate model Mm -hmm. of Disney Mm -hmm. rather than, say, Mm -hmm. the NFL Mm -hmm. um, or even the MLB. They were really um, a small... A footprint. Mm -hmm. And so with the ABA, the ABA was the American Basketball Association, which came into being in 1967 Mm -hmm. um, as the first major rival to the NBA. So the NBA had been in existence for a couple of decades at that point. In the 1950s, in terms of the racial landscape, Mm -hmm. they had started letting black players trickle into the league. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. By the late 50s, you have some of the first black emerging superstars like Elgin Baylor and Maurice Stokes. Um, But it's really only in the 60s that you get a major, major superstar like Bill Russell of the Celtics. So basketball at that time was still not identified as a black sport. Mm -hmm. I would describe the way that uh, the NBA sort of let uh, certain players into the league um, in the 1960s as a form of controlled integration. Mm -hmm. They had an informal quota that only allowed a certain number of black players per roster. You Mm. could not, at that time, it wasn't acceptable from the league's perspective to have more than a couple of black players um, on the court at any one time. Mm -hmm. When the ABA came into existence in 1967, they blew that all up. Um, because they're this rival league, what they needed in order to compete with the NBA, which was still kind of a fledgling 
sports property at that time, they needed talent. Mm -hmm. And so they tried to poach players from the NBA, but they weren't too successful Mm -hmm. at doing that. So one of the things that they was attract players from non-traditional sources. Mm -hmm. So the Eastern League, um, uh, you know, really trying to find black talent from HBCUs Mm -hmm. and other colleges that typically had been overlooked for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so you really have the disappearance of the informal quotas at that point. And so by the time you get to the mid-1970s, the folks on the court look completely different (laughs) from what they look like, for example, in the early 60s. -hmm. It was a 75% black workforce. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, at least from the NBA's perspective, the imagined fan was still straight white man Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. with disposable income, probably middle class, Mm -hmm. um, maybe working class with uh, ability to pay for tickets, but they weren't thinking of black uh, black Americans as their market. Mm. And so they saw this mismatch, this growing mismatch between the, literally the color of their workforce mm-hmm. and the color of their fans and not just the demographics, but also the cultural differences. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to grapple with that, I think, over the course of the entire 70s. Like, how do we continue to build the fan base of the NBA and turn it into a major sports media property like the NFL, mm-hmm. like Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. And so I look at it from the player's perspective, those various struggles in really what I would call the first decade of true racial integration mm-hmm. in uh, professional basketball. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I mean, you, you you have a quote. You say that black players were both cheered and chastised for their innovation, for their high-flying dunks and their artistry on the court. And then you say it, it was a contamination of Naismith's hollowed vision, <laughs> which I found to be really interesting because I had just interviewed David Hollander, who wrote this incredible <sighs> book, How Basketball Can right, Save right. the World, about you know how why Dr. Naismith invented the game. Um, and... I don't think Dr. Naismith intended it to be a quote-unquote white-only sport, right? I mean, that wasn't his idea. Um, And like you say, that kind of is what it became until the ABA really started to show what black players could do. The NBA apparently got kind of nervous about that. Um, Like you said, the, the, the fan base was mostly white. The owners were white. There was kind of a weird peaceful coexistence, I don't know if it was peaceful, but between the two leagues, right? And then enters Spencer Haywood (laughs) to really (laughs) push the envelope. And can you just, Spencer's a great friend and he told his story on the podcast, but from your perspective, um, what did Spencer's action, how did they impact what what is the game today quite frankly and i'm just going to sum that up by saying spencer and i always talk about how every guy in the nba today should be sending him a christmas card (laughs) because it was because of him really and oscar of course um and others but i don't think the majority of the guys today know what he did for them so can you kind of recap all that yeah i mean 
One of the things that Spencer Haywood always talks about is how his legal battles really struck down the four-year rule. Mm -hmm. So the NBA had this rule. It was essentially a gentleman's agreement, which said, okay, we won't touch your players until they've fulfilled all of their eligibility. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you will send them to our draft. Mm -hmm. There will be an orderly process where only one team can you know, offer a contract to a player. And this will help us to move players from the amateurs to the pros in an orderly way and help keep control of the size of contracts. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, definitely part of his legacy. And I think it's a huge part of his legacy. But what a lot of people don't know about Spencer Haywood is that his journey to that case actually started when um, the ABA developed something called the hardship clause, mm -hmm. uh, which was a, an attempt to undercut the NBA's four-year rule and get talent earlier. Mm -hmm. Wanted to be able to recruit underclassmen before they had used up all of their four years of eligibility. And so Spencer Haywood, you know, being the kind of guy who doesn't just settle, he was at the University of Detroit, superstar player. You know, part of the reason why he gets to the University of Detroit is because he had been such a major force on the Olympic team mm -hmm. in 1968. Yeah, the youngest so member of the team. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And yeah. he, you know, blew everything out of the water, um, set records, um, and he seemed apolitical. Mm. Because remember, in 1968, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and um, other black athletes particularly other black centers, had decided to not go to the Olympics, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at least partially in protest mm -hmm. of continued racism in sport as part of the uh, wider revolt of the black athlete. Comes a major phenom in 1968, gets recruited, ends up playing at the University of Detroit. They made a ton of promises to him. Mm -hmm. He feels like he's not getting a proper education there. That's mm -hmm. the story, you mm -hmm. know, a, a, almost like the hamster wheel of the N NCAA history is mm -hmm. that, geez, you know, we get recruited with these promises of a great education and then you get there and they're trying to push you into easier courses. He thought that his coach, his mentor or his, um, his mentor was going to become his coach and that they would have essentially an all black squad with a black um, coach. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. They brought in an authoritarian white coach that Spencer did not get along with. Mm -hmm. And so when the NBA, where the ABA came knocking and said, you know, here, we've got this million dollar contract to offer you. If you will leave as an underclassman and join the ABA, of course, yeah. <laughs> Mississippi, who, you know, a few years prior had been picking cotton. Mm -hmm. So again, this is not somebody who sort of just follows the party line and just takes things as they come. Mm -hmm. He chose to take that step of being the first ever hardship um, draftee into the ABA. And he received a lot of flack mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. People forget. People forget that the press was decrying his selfishness and the, you know, the fact that he was um, transgressing all of the traditions of basketball. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, look, I, you know, they wave a contract in front of my face. It's a lot of money. 
I got to think about my family. Mm-hmm. I got to think about my mother. So that was the first thing where he just sort of took his own path and said, you know, screw the system. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to uh, the Denver Rockets of the ABA. Fast forward, he finds out that this supposedly million dollar contract <laughs> is not actually worth what they claimed it was worth. Mm-hmm. And so he then, again, instead of just sort of swallowing it, he went back and he tried to renegotiate actually three times. Like mm-hmm. he gets three different contracts with them. <laughs> um, to me, this is just astounding mm-hmm. in an era where there's a reserve clause, mm-hmm. in an era where this just, you know, was not acceptable behavior for players. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he ends up seeking out representation from an agent which further inflamed the owners of the denver rockets all right let's leave it there for now amazing conversation dr Teresa rustetler talking about the nba uh you know really uh you know how pivotal the 1970s were uh just uh, again that's that's one of the reasons i love uh, Legends of Sport Friday, you learn so much. Uh, you learn stuff about things that you thought you do, and you learn stuff about things that that, that you really had no idea about. And, and so it just an amazing book, an amazing conversation. So we'll leave it there for now. When we come back, more Legends of Sport Friday with Andy Bernstein and Dr. Teresa Rustedler. When we come back right here on the Mightier 1090 in Southern California, the Bet in Las Vegas, and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. We'll be right back with the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Time. There's nothing more valuable. It's what drives everyone to make the most of every moment. We celebrate living large in the now. In a city where time disappears, we create experiences that electrify the soul and memories that will last forever. We go big, we go all night, and here, everyone is invited. So get loose and get loud. This is Circa. You'll have the time of your life. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Welcome back to the Arash Markazi Show presented by the Sporting Tribune on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio in Southern California. 98.5 The Bet in Las Vegas and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network 95.1 FM and DAM 760 in Hawaii. Just as a reminder, if you have a question or comment, or want to win tickets to an upcoming game in Southern California, Las Vegas, or Hawaii, call our hotline 310-400-0340. Again, amazing conversation this week, Legends of Sport Friday with Andy Bernstein, with Dr. Teresa Rustedler. Um, again, just a snippet. We only played just a snippet of the conversation you have, Andy. How can the listeners hear the whole thing? Well, I would hope people would go to their favorite podcast platform. Um, we're hosted by iHeart, but of course you can get us an Apple and Spotify. So it's the Legends of Sport podcast. Um, also go to our website, legendsofsport.net, because that has everything on it from uh, the stay in sports history to our archived uh, podcasts, um, our YouTube channel as well, Legends of Sport. Um so this this uh, interview was actually done on audio and video. Oh. And um, if people want to check out my photography, go to at ADB Photo Inc. and at Legends of Sport on Instagram. 
Again, the book you're talking about this week, Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the Generation That Saved the Soul of the um, NBA. You know Spencer Haywood, you touched on this, and Kareem. How much of what's talked about in the book um, were you familiar with? Um, Not a lot, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I knew about Spencer's battles um his personal you know she gets a little bit into his personal history yeah. um which set, sort of set the table for um for him taking on the mantle of really taking on this incredible task of of reversing the uh, four-year rule um you know back then the the nba required that players could not enter the draft um, until he had four years of college or they were four years removed from high school. So that was very limiting. And Spencer talked about it. He talked about the fact that, you know, he, he shouldn't be handcuffed by that. Um, he wanted to, uh, he wanted to play in the NBA. He didn't necessarily want to play in the ABA, but the ABA came calling Um he then went and, and aligned himself with the uh, the owner of the Seattle Supersonics, who, um, you know, was a wealthy white man. And here's Spencer, you know, an African-American. And it was, you know, a difficult time in American racial history. Um, so, you know, all of that stuff uh, I kind of sort of knew about, but she she wrote about it very eloquently. And and of course, I, I discussed it with Spencer after I read the book and, and he verified, you know, everything that was in there. Um, but I didn't know about the ABA, NBA uh, sort of drama that was going on, you know, and the fact that um, there was really a bidding war during the 70s that the ABA was luring a lot of top players out of college um, to play uh, with big for big money back then. But, you know, and these guys were going over playing in the ABA. The NBA didn't like it. They wanted to sort of absorb whatever teams were still solvent in the ABA, which which they ended up doing. I think four teams entered the, N the NBA from the ABA days. Um, but then Oscar Robertson and the Players Association, and by that time Oscar had retired, but yeah. he was still fighting for the fact that players needed to have the ability to have sort of free enterprise movement, um, and that you know the NBA was in in his eyes and in the Players Association's eyes was was creating a monopoly. I didn't know about that, you know, I really didn't, um, and the fact that. Uh, you know, gambling was was talked about in her book. Wasn't that familiar with gambling? I was familiar with the 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 sort of drug culture sort of scenario that we've all sort of grown up with about the seventies in the NBA, which is, was a little overblown, quite frankly, yeah. um, according to her. Um, but you know, she comes with some tremendous credentials. I mean, it's just not somebody writing. You know, I mean, she took years to write this book. It, hundreds of interviews and uh the result is a really fascinating read awesome i mean i i definitely am going to go uh pick up the book just just because of uh you know what you're talking about and again you brought up a good point i really think that the players of today you can't make it a requirement but i really wish that they would take some pride in terms of the history of the game and yeah. the league that they play in uh with that said let's now get to the second part of your amazing conversation on legends of sport friday Dr. Teresa Rustedler. 
let's fast forward, okay? Because I'm I'm now getting into the league. It's in 1983. Um, Larry O'Brien was still the commissioner, so I'm in my third commissioner now. Um, David Stern comes in, and it was like a perfect storm of like great stuff happening <laughs> for the NBA all at the same time. I mean, Bird and Magic became the face of the league, right? David, you know, we used to call him Uncle David. It was a small little operation back in those days. Um, you know, David had a marketing vision, and he understood that, um, well, he embraced the blackness, quote unquote, of the league, which was, I think at that time, you said it was like 78, 9% black, right? And he understood what, what that meant and, and pushing it forward, um, you know, Michael Jordan, of course. So is it fair to say that Bird and Magic basically saved the league <laughs> at that point? What do you think? I mean, games were on tape delay and all that stuff. And the league was like the fourth league out there. So, you know, what do you think? I don't know if they saved the league. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, the league was going through some major shifts in the 1970s. And often, you know, as I say in the introduction to the book, it's the players who bear the brunt of that narrative of decline. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are held to blame. And then often the narrative is that David Stern came in and saved the league. (laughs) And so it becomes this sort of white savior narrative. Mm. But I think that all of those hard won battles in the early 70s, um, the ongoing transformation of what was going on on the court Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in terms of the stylistic revolution, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the shift to a much more fast paced aerial game um, that mirrored what was going on um, on playground playground courts um, in black neighborhoods, all of that transformation was happening sort of under the radar. Mm -hmm. So that by the time you get to the early 80s, I think that there was, you know, there's a generational shift in terms of who is watching basketball at that time. Mm -hmm. The uh, NBA, I think, you know, won a major um, kind of media victory in getting major cable deals. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when Michael Jordan came in and David Stern came in, they had already, the NBA had already sort of set up the architecture business wise Mm -hmm. to provide a product. Um, And they had figured out in some ways how to monetize that blackness, Mm -hmm. but it was of course a blackness that was, within um certain boundaries Mm -hmm. it was a blackness that was divorced from its wider politics Mm -hmm. right there was very little discussion of you know um ongoing inequalities in the united states and that was not sort of being read on the players Mm -hmm. in the same way that it was in the 1970s so to say that it's any one person or any couple of players i think that you know the 80s was sort of the moment when you have um the nba really set up for success Mm -hmm. in the media landscape Mm -hmm. and you have a public that is more willing to um celebrate black style Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah in a way that they weren't ready to do mm-hmm. in the 1970s sure i mean they were marketing the sport to white middle class basically um 
you know, you had kids wearing, you know, Jordans and everybody else's Iversons. Uh, It was just amazing for me to witness that and live through that and, and document that quite honestly. Um, I want to fast forward again to the bubble, all right, to 2020, the summer of 2020. I was in the bubble for 53 days, which is a whole other oh. book that you could write one day, <laughs> or maybe we'll write it together. Um, what, what, so I'm, picture this, I, I'm seven days in quarantine in my tiny little room, and I'm about to get out, and that night, night before I get out of quarantine, this league shut down because of Black Lives Matter, you know, everything that was going on out outside of the bubble and outside of Disney World um, was starting to permeate into the bubble. And the, the players shut the league down, right? NBA, WNBA, and all the other leagues followed. What, what were you thinking at that time when you were watching this whole thing unfold and the Milwaukee Bucks refused to play? And then there was a decision where, you know, were, were we going to go home or are we going to figure this out or what? What were you personally thinking in that moment? You know, it made me think of the Bucks from the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Oscar mm-hmm. Robertson, <laughs> uh, Wally Jones. And, you know, uh, those players who, you know, make appearances in the book, mm-hmm. who really fought the power um, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for being somebody who was just unapologetically who he was, right? Mm-hmm. Embodying uh, a you know, the modern black athlete who wasn't submissive anymore, who Mm -hmm. just wanted to play basketball, but didn't want to have to live up to traditional expectations of black athletes. Mm. Um, Somebody like Wally Jones, who was, you know, community oriented, um, who uh, through concerned athletes in action was doing work, helping youth, um, in his off season. And then Oscar Robertson, of course, mm-hmm. who helped to bring down the reserve clause. Mm-hmm. To me, what was happening in the bubble could not have happened without all of those earlier battles. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the amount of power that the NDPA had in order to come together in the context of that moment mm-hmm. and basically engage in a wildcat strike. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was a boycott. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks have called it a boycott, yeah. but if you think about it in terms of labor actions that have happened, I mean, mm-hmm. that's basically a sit down strike. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're for sure. refusing to play a game. Yeah. Now done that without all of the contract protections, mm-hmm. Um, the kind of fame and cultural capital that these players have now, thanks to that, mm-hmm. you know, those earlier struggles of those players, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, there is something particular about um, the, co- the collective nature of Black Lives Matter protests that were happening in the NBA that you don't see in other leagues mm, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the NFL mm-hmm. or Major League Baseball. Right. Um, so to me, that was the culmination mm-hmm. of everything that that earlier generation had fought for. Yeah, so interesting. And then, of course, you know, being able to get the message out on social media, which the players in the 70s obviously didn't have. Right. Players now have their own platforms. Every every single player, you know, one through fourteen or fifteen on uh, the bench, 
that can be a really good thing and that can be not such a really good thing as we saw with Kyrie right. Irving this year. Mostly it's a good thing, I think. What what if Spencer Haywood had social media? <laughs> You know, you know what I, mean? I think he back, would have been all over that, first of all. Right. Back then, I'm talk- he has it now, which is yeah, wonderful. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, if you think about how he was covered yeah. back in the day, you know, everything, and, and folks don't, especially the younger folks, they don't understand that everything was mediated mm-hmm. through a white, you know, sports media establishment. Mm-hmm. Which often, you know, particularly in the 1970s, and a lot of black journalists noted this, and and the players as well, often ended up becoming the mouthpiece for the team owners Mm -hmm. and never reporting what the league was saying or what the team owners were claiming. Mm. Um, So in the context of that, and then also a wider white media landscape, the place that folks like... Spencer Haywood or Oscar Robertson had to go to get their stories out was independent black media. Mm-hmm. That's really all they had. Yeah, yeah. Or they had to face criticism right. in mainstream media. And yeah. that's why, you know, I turned a lot to um, black sports magazine, for example, in uh, the 1970s, which was like the sports illustrated, but black owned and uh, you know, um, black controlled and for a black audience, mm-hmm. that was the space that you had to go to or mm-hmm. black newspapers in order to give the counter narrative mm-hmm. um, to the rest of the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. So I think social media mention to that because now you don't even have to rely <laughs> on traditional media outlets. Right. Um, right. Regardless of whether or not they're corporate or independent, you can actually put out for good, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. You can put out your own narrative mm-hmm. about, you know, your thoughts, mm-hmm. critiques, or, you know, gripes. Yeah. But these guys have so much power in um, in just the number of followers and people who believe them and believe in the causes that they champion, which, you know, we can go on and on about that. But Teresa, you've been incredibly patient and wonderful. And thank you. I don't want to neglect your personal story, which we'd like to get into it with every guest, right? Just recap it a little bit. You know, here's a young girl growing up in Canada, right? She's not, yeah. And Canada, believe it or not, as David says in his book, Canada like gets sort of the, the I don't know, the short end of the stick when it comes to basketball history. You know, you're yeah. a Canadian. Naismith was a Canadian. <laughs> but basketball is huge in Canada. So you're working for the Toronto Raptors. Talk about that whole, you know, scenario for yourself. Yeah. So I joined, actually, so rewind. Yeah. I was a, um, a third year in university. Mm-hmm. And somebody dared me to go to the open audition for the Toronto Raptors dance pack. And I said, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. I'll go. Mm-hmm. Ended up um, out of like hundreds of people somehow making it onto the team. Hmm. And this was like really in the first years of the, N- uh, the NBA's presence right. in Toronto. So I think I came in the second year hmm. that the Toronto Raptors were in existence. So it was still like actually a cool thing to be on the dance yeah, team. Yeah, I bet. Um, and it was and a different kind of dance team, by the way, as I remember. Yeah. Yes. It wasn't Absolutely. the typical, you know, cheerleader-ish um, dance team. Yeah. 
Right. And, you know, at the time growing up, we didn't have really a kind of um, big cheerleading culture in um, southern Ontario. It's hockey land. Right. You know, it's the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's, you know, very little, you know, maybe folks follow the Buffalo Bills, but or the CFL. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not at that time. Basketball was something that especially kids of color really craved. Mm. Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, Toronto Raptors, when they came in, were such a, a, you know, phenomenon for a lot of young folks coming up in their 20s mm-hmm. who listened to hip hop, who had watched the NBA for years, who wanted to have that kind of electric spectacle mm-hmm. in a place like Toronto that wasn't in a rink. Right. Um, right. <laughs> And so it was so exciting to be a part of that dance team because at the time when we first started out, they gave us a lot of leeway to do what we wanted and all props to the head of the dance team at that time, Tamara Mose, Mm -hmm. who insisted on having men on the team, Mm -hmm. insisted on having a, you know, multicultural, multiracial team. Um, was really interested in reflecting the youth culture mm-hmm. at that time, which was hip hop culture for kids across Toronto. And so we danced to all of the latest music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then that sort of started to change once the Toronto Raptors became much more corporatized mm-hmm. and they were bought out by um, Maple Leaf Sport and Entertainment. Right, right. And you really saw almost... Uh, um, an attempt to make us look like other dance teams, mm, yeah. <laughs> the more more of the typical dance team of the NBA. Mm. So even back in the the late '90s, I could see how those dynamics were working, mm. and we were we were told that you know the folks who we are performing for are the folks who sit closest to the court, mm. Mm. Um, and you know that that we needed to make sure that we put forth you know the right appearance for that. Yeah. Um, hmm. So how long, know, how long did you dance? How, how long were you with the dance pack? I, I did three seasons. Oh, okay. Them. Yeah. So two of them, I was still in university and I did one season just after university when my parents were like, what are you doing with your life? Are you going to get a real job? <laughs> um, <laughs> that was also the year of the lockout. Right. All right. That's it for another edition of Legends of Sport Friday right here on the Arash Markazi show presented by the Sporting Tribune. You never know uh, what you'll learn. Uh, just an amazing conversation this week with Dr. Teresa Runstedler. Uh, go out and check out her book, Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. Until next time, this is Arash Markazi saying stay safe and stay healthy. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Hustle for the cash, so it's hard to knock it. Everybody got their own thing, currency chasing. Worldwide through the hard times, worrying faces. Shed tears as we bury brothers close to heart. What was a friend, now a ghost in the dark. Hard part about it, brother got smoked by a fiend. Trying to floss on him, blind to a broken man's Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.